My wife's a vegetarian, and uh, I'm not, but I don't eat meat in the house around her because, you know, she's really against it. But I respect her, you know, and it makes you think, like, what if God didn't intend us to eat meat, you know? He must have been pretty shocked when we, he found out we started. The saint comes up, hey, I just got back from Earth, checked on the people. Oh, wonderful, how are they doing? Uh, they're good, they're good, they're fine, they're, they're okay. No, what is it? Go ahead, what, what is it? They're eating everything. What do you mean, like all the plants? No, like every animal you ever created. The chickens, the cows. They love cows. They love cows. I'm sure there are some things that we as humanity do that shock God. Because I know there's some things that we as humanity, uh, that we do that shock me. And one of those things is the story we're actually going to look at today. It is a shocking story. And so parents, just a little heads up. There are some adult themes in the story I'm going to share with you today, of the Bible uh, chapters that we're going to look at today. I'm going to try to filter some of that. Uh, but if I filter too much, you kind of lose out on the craziness of it. So just as a heads up, you do whatever you feel like is right. I keep it pretty, uh, pretty tame, but, uh, but just know that there are some adult themes coming up uh, because it is truly, as I have prefaced throughout this entire week leading up to today, it is a crazy, weird, wild story. In fact, it's a story that you probably haven't read because your parents, if they even read the Bible to you growing up, just skipped this one because they didn't even know what to do with it. And, but it is a great story, nonetheless, to kick off this new series that we're starting uh, called Right in the Eye. And the series is based on the book of Judges. And the Judges, or the period of the Judges, wasn't just a book. It is a book in the Old Testament, but it's also a period of time, about 300 years, that happened between uh, 13 AD and, or BC, actually. I shouldn't say AD. I messed up. That's 1300 BC and 1000 BC. Uh, or if you know your Old Testament history, your, your Jewish history, that was the time during uh, Joshua, who followed Moses, who was supposed to bring the people into the Promised Land. They got out of Egypt, Moses brought them out. They went in the desert for a while. And then Joshua brought the people into the promised land. And then it was the period of the judges followed by the period of the kings, like King Saul, King David, King Solomon, all of that in the Old Testament or the first half of the Bible, the pre-Jesus part of the Bible. Now, during the time of Judges, a little backstory, the nation of Israel, which this is approximately the area of land currently um, that makes up the nation of Israel, the modern day nation. At that time, it was divided into 12 different tribes. And the reason for that actually comes from the story we looked at or quickly glanced through last week about Jacob and Esau and how Jacob had received his blessing uh, from instead of Esau. And then his descendants, the 12 sons, created individual tribes or eventually became the, the leaders of these individual 12 tribes that made up the entire nation of Israel. And when they made it to the promised land, the promised land was then divided up into those 12 different groups. Now, during the period of Judges, how things were supposed to work was that there was, um, th that God was supposed to be the king and that God had given through Moses a bunch of laws, including the Ten Commandments, probably something you've heard about or familiar with. And so he gave them those laws. 
And then they, the nation was supposed to follow God as their king and follow those laws. And when they got off, they, God would raise up some judges or some essentially leaders to ensure those laws and their behavior was upheld or get them out of trouble. And just like me and you, especially when we were younger, maybe even still when we're older, um, we know what we should do, but we don't often do it. We know what we should do, but we don't often do it. And the entire book of Judges is that story for the nation of Israel and all those 12 tribes. In fact, it continues to go through this cycle throughout the entire story where the nation of Israel would disobey God, disobey his law, disaster would quickly follow because they didn't follow what God wanted them to do, and then they would cry out to God, say, God will never do that again, which maybe you did to your parents once or twice or dozen plus times. We'll never do that again, God. Please take us back. Help us deliver us. And God would come in and deliver them. And then they do the whole thing over again. Disobey, dis uh, destruction, despair, and then deliverance. That circle, that circle over and over and over again. And that may be a circle that's somewhat familiar to you, especially your teenage years. Christian or not, that is a story or a cycle that's a little bit familiar to us. And I know, and you know, how most of those stories begin. They all start kind of the same way. They start with us getting somewhat of an attitude of, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. I want to think what I want to think. I want to believe mom what I want to believe. I want to believe dad what I want to believe. Give me the freedom. Don't take my liberty. Mind your own business. I got this handled. I can take care of myself. And that's how it always started, right? And then you got yourself in your trouble and you're like, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. In fact, I think this is somewhat of the heart or a part of the heart of the American dream. That we should be able to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. And so that's why I think today we should reflect on that because I think sometimes that attitude, that approach to life can get us into a little bit of trouble. And so the story that I want to share with you today actually comes from the very end of the book of Judges, specifically chapter 19 and 20 through 21. So three chapters. We obviously don't have the time to go through all of it, so I'm going to summarize most of it. And, uh, and then you can, after today or after the, the message is over, you can go and read it yourself, read it tonight. It is quite a read, but it shows and illustrates how bad things had gotten in the nation of Israel and how we can have intense, terrible consequences for that approach to life. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. So essentially how the story starts is with uh, a Levite, okay? Uh, a Levite, and going back to our map here, a little bit more zoomed in map, um, a Levite who was, uh, a Levite was a descendant of a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi, okay? And he lived in Ephraim, right here, right in the kind of the middle of the modern day nation of Israel. He lived in Ephraim, okay, which was also a tribe. And he had a concubine. And a concubine was essentially a second wife, but less than, like far less than. Not that wives really had much status anyways, but far less than, really equivalent to property. And so for the rest of our time together, um, when we talk about the concubine, we're going to say the Levite's lady friend, okay, just to make it a little bit more PG, all right? And this lady was from Bethlehem. And as the story begins, we find out that this particular uh, lady friend was unfaithful to the Levite man. 
And instead of dealing with the problem, instead of working out their issues, she just decides to up and leave. And so she leaves and she goes down to her hometown in Bethlehem down south. Okay, Bethlehem might have heard of that place. Okay, and she's there for four months. And finally, the Levite thinks to himself, you know, I want to get my lady friend back. So he packs up two donkeys, his young male servant, and they make the journey down from Ephraim down to Bethlehem. I should reference it in the map. So they're up here in Ephraim, and they're going to go all the way down here through the tribe of Benjamin. That's important. All the way down here into the tribe of Judah, specifically to Bethlehem. And so he shows up, and he shows up at her house, um, which her house is owned by her father-in-law, is what the, the author of Judges tells us. And so um, he goes in, he, he convinces her to come back with him. And it's, you know, mid-afternoon or something like that. And, and so they're going to make, they're making plans to go back up to Ephraim. And the father-in-law comes in and the father-in-law says to the Levite, he says, why don't you guys stay the night? Refresh yourselves. Let's eat and drink together and you can leave in the morning. And so they did. But they didn't just drink a little bit. They drank a lot of it. And so by the time everybody woke up in the morning, the Levite woke up in the morning, he was really hungover. Like he had a massive headache. He wasn't going anywhere. And so the father-in-law, knowing that, came in and said, hey, why don't you, Mr. Levite, stay another light? Recuperate. We'll get you some food. You can leave again in the morning. Guess what happened that night? Same exact thing. Woke up, terrible hangover, didn't go anywhere. And this cycle just repeats itself for days and days. And finally, the Levite's like, I can't do this anymore. So mid-afternoon, one day, he says, we're leaving. We're leaving. So he packs up the two donkeys, his young male servant, his lady friend, and him. And they get on the road, and they start heading all the way back up to his home in Ephraim. Okay? So now they're on their way up, it gets late and it gets late about halfway to their destination right here in the town of Gibeah. Now in those days, there was no hotels, there was no, uh, there was no Holiday Inn Express or Motel 8. And so to have a home to stay in during the night uh, in the nation of Israel, you abided by the law of hospitality. And the law of hospitality was given by God that essentially said, what you can do is you can seek to have uh, stay in is, any Israelite home. You, you, uh, and, and what's supposed to technically happen is they were to go to the middle of the town and sit probably by a well, because usually a, a well was the middle of a town. And they would sit there and then they would wait for someone to come out and give them a, a home to stay in for the night. But they were sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and nobody showed up. And so finally, it gets so late, and they're like, what in the world are we going to do? A man, an older man, comes in from the field late at night, and he comes and he sees them sitting by the well in the middle of the town. And, and come to find out, he is also from Ephraim, just like the Levite. And so he says, hey, you guys should just come over and stay in my house. I don't know what's going on with, uh, you know, the rest of the people here in Gibeah. They're not actually really that nice, but you, you come in and stay with me. So they went over, got everybody impact, everybody's in. They're sitting and relaxing and hanging out. Okay, you following so far? Because here's where it starts to get a little weird and mildly uncomfortable. In fact, a lot of it uncomfortable. They're inside relaxing. And the author of Judges says that some wicked, wicked men come to the door and start pounding on the door. And they yell through the door. They say, bring out the man who has come to your house so we can have blank with him. 
I'm going to let you fill in the blank. I'm guessing you can probably do that on your own. Now, this was not exactly uh, a, a matter of like a gratification, okay? This was a matter of humiliation. This was, in fact, a behavior that was very pervasive throughout those times, as well as even through the next thousand plus years of history. Through the Roman Empire, we see history uh, or, or um, documentation of uh, male soldiers after winning a defeat, um, doing this with those that they conquered in an, uh, in an act of humiliation. Essentially, what these wicked, wicked men wanted to accomplish was so that this Levite would leave never to come back to Gibeah again. In fact, that he would leave and tell all of his friends, everyone he knew, stay away from Gibeah. Stay away from the tribe of Benjamin. They are awful, terrible, terrible, terrible people. So the owner of the house stood up and said, uh, went outside and said to them, no, my friends, you cannot be so vile. This is a law of hospitality. They're in my home. They're safe since this man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Now you think this is uncomfortable. It only gets worse. The man then says, look, here is my daughter and his lady friend, the Levite's lady friend. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. Weirded out yet? Why would they do this? Because that's how valuable women were in those days. Women were a commodity. Women were a piece of property. You just use them however you Wish. And so these men were using the women to save their own lives. But the men would not listen to them. The men would not listen to him. So the Levite took his lady friend and sent her outside to them. And what happens next, we're not even going to put on the screen because it is that bad. So in the morning, a Levite goes out the front door and looks down. And there, dead on the ground, is his lady friend. And he is, understandably, a little upset. Maybe not so upset at the loss, but just upset at the sheer experience that they had to go through. And he's angry. And so he gets his uh, two, uh, two donkeys and his young male servant and, and himself, and he gets them, and he goes back up to Ephraim, and he puts it, the, his lady friend on the donkey and brings her body back to Ephraim. And there he devises a plan to get the attention of all the other not tribes in the nation to figure out how they are going to punish the tribe of Benjamin, how they're going to punish the people, those wicked people in Benjamin, because he had to get back at them. And so his clever plan was not, he wasn't just going to send letters. He wasn't just going to send an emissary out to all the nations, tell them what happened. He cuts up the body of his lady friend into 12 pieces, sends them out across the nation and says, this is what happened. Look. And the tribes of Israel, the other 11 tribes were furious. They said to themselves, how we have sunk to such an incredible low. We have to do better. We have to do something about it. We got to punish them. We got to get back at them. We got to treat, teach everybody in Gibeah a lesson. And so what do they do? They get the entire nation together and um, they get all these fighting men together and they go down to the small little tribe right here of Benjamin, bring their army in. And it turns out the army of the Benjamites is waiting for them. And in, uh, uh, an incredible moment and a civil war breaks out among Israel. A nation is at war because of this story so far. 
And then this whole war goes on, and the Benjamites looks like they're winning. And so the, the, the 11 other tribes do this little trick thing, and they circumvent, they go around the Benjamite army and sneak into Gibeah and lay waste to the town. They burn it to the ground. And then the, the, the army of the Benjamites turns around and realizes what's happening in the Gibeah. They're freaking out because they think they've lost the battle. So they all scatter. And instead of just letting them scatter, the 11 tribes, bloodlust and anger heavy, they follow the Benjamites and hunt them all down. And then they go town to town to town and lay waste to the entire tribe of Benjamites, save for about a few hundred men who escape into the forests. And after everything's done and devastation has reigned on the, the tribe of Benjamin, the, the, they all gather, the 11 tribes of fighting men gather here in, the, in the, what was left of the town of Mitzbah, and they gather together. And if you would have shown up in this moment where the 11 tribes are coming back from this utter destruction, you would have seen 11 tribes of fighting men weeping. And you would think to yourself, why are you weeping after you just did this terrible, terrible thing? I mean, didn't you think about it before you did it? Well, they were sad because they had wiped out, they were crying out to God because they had wiped out an entire tribe of God's people. And so they devised a plan. And oh, my friends, it was a plan indeed to try to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. So they went out and they found out that there were some 600 or so odd uh, male uh, uh, soldiers uh, hiding out in the forest. They offer them a peace offering. They say, come back. We want to repopulate. We want to repeal the tribe of Benjamin. We feel really bad about this thing. And so then they, to repopulate, you need both men and women. I don't know if you knew that. So they went over to a nearby town and got a bunch of women. They essentially just took them, a bunch of women, but not 600, but enough, brought them over and said, here's how this is going to work. We don't have enough women for all of you men, but here's how this is going to go. We're going to set the women loose in a vineyard, and then all you men, you hide in the trees around the vineyard. And then when we say go, you run out and catch yourself a woman, and then take that woman back and repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. I am not joking, not making this up. This is how we're going to do this. And so they did. And the tribe of Benjamin was rebuilt. And the book of Judges ends. Quite the story, right? I was kind of curious how this story would go in my uh, daughter's children's Bible, and I looked for it, and I couldn't find it. Can you believe that? They just cut this story out. And then the author of Judges leaves us with one verse, one sentence to wrap up the final book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, no guiding moral authority. So all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And isn't that kind of true? That if you look at this story and you take any part of it and you kind of zoom in and look at it to try to isolate it and understand it in each and every moment, it was just a couple of individuals, one individual doing what was right in their own eyes. The woman was unfaithful, but instead of working it out, she's like, I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to run away from this situation. So she did. And the guy went down. And he shouldn't have drank as much, but he just kind of wanted to. It sounded good. He's on vacation. What's it going to hurt? But it hurt a lot. 
And the wicked men, they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. But then the guys inside, they were like, well, we're going to hide behind the women. And so they sent them out and they did what was right in their eyes. And then the wicked men did this terrible thing. And so they said, we got to get justice. We got to take justice into our own hands. We got to get back at these Benjamites. And they start a civil war out of it, which leads to the entire destruction of all of the Benjamites. It didn't need to, but it did because they got bloodlust hungry and they said, well, if we're going to, you know, punish them this far, we might as well just go all the way and wipe them all out because maybe they're all bad. And then they're like, gosh, we feel bad. So what are we going to do? Well, we should repopulate it and steal a bunch of women and give it to some of these guys and then all will be made right. They did what was right in their own eyes. And the problem with that is there's a little bit of that in you. And there's a little bit of the right, not, uh, right in my own eyes in me. We, we think to ourselves, we got to take care of number one. We got to take care of me and what I think is best, what I want to do. And we are not going to do a good job of considering how our actions, how what we see is right in our own eyes affects others. And like I said at the start, the problem with this, I think, is this is kind of the dark side, the underbelly of the American dream. The American dream. The American dream that says this, I have the freedom to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and no one is going to stop me. I don't know what elementary school was like for you, but Oh, growing up, uh, I remember that if you had a disagreement with someone, elementary school, I mean, it's not the most mature environment ever, but I think it was also one of the most honest, right? Nobody knew how to lie or lie really well. And so if you got in disagreement, I remember back in those days what people would respond with. You, you were disagreeing about something, and eventually as the, you know, the tension built or the frustration built, eventually one of the kids would just say, well, it's a free country, I can do whatever I want. As if that made their actions accessible. And I think, I would argue, suggest you to consider that as adults, well, we kind of do the same thing. We're just better liars about it. That we defend our actions, we defend our beliefs as free speech, as religious freedom, as the right to bear arms, the right to do this, the right to do that, when I want, with whom I want, and how, how I want to go about it. But have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that we only push back when the freedoms that allow us to do what we want, when we want, are compromised? Like, I have never seen anyone out there arguing or ensuring we have like maximum freedom, right? I've never seen anyone out there arguing for the freedom from quartering soldiers. To which you say, what? Quartering what? What is that? What are you talking about? Exactly. This is why you should read the Bill of Rights. Literally the third one is the freedom from quartering soldiers. I don't see anyone defending that freedom. Why aren't they defending that freedom? Because they don't feel like that freedom is compromising ultimately what they want to do, when they want to do it, with whom they want to do it with. And, and you think to yourself, well, Taylor, are you against freedom? Are you against the Bill of Rights? No, I'm just against the, against the idea that this is freedom, that that is freedom. 
Because all I see in that is this. I have the freedom to do what I want when I want to do it with whom I want to do it with. No wonder that the book of Judges' outcome is chaos because it's just all self-focused. Because all it is is a bunch of people just trying to do what they think is right in their own eyes when they want to do it, how they want to get it done. And no ultimate guiding moral authority you think, well, I want to have fun, so I'm going to go out and party. But, but ultimately, what does that bring you? And ultimately, how does that help others? You think to yourself, oh, well, um, you know, or maybe you've experienced this, you know, my, my spouse doesn't do what I want when, they, when I want them to do it, and, and at the time I want them to do it. And, and so you get angry, don't you? Or, or you want to, you know, be with someone. So you have dates and you, you not just have dates, you just have a lot of dates because, well, you just want to be with someone. And so because you want to be with something, that means you can treat people or however many people you want, however you want to treat them. Free country. You want something, so you spend something for it. Because you want it. I want it. Even though we deep down know that the idea of this kind of freedom to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, isn't real, real, realistic, we push for it, we fight for it, all the same. Even though we know that really, ultimately, only the super rich people in the world could afford this kind of freedom. And you want to know why only rich people can? Because only they can afford the lawyers it takes to live this kind of life. Because the life where you are at the center of what is right in the world, that version of freedom, this version of freedom, hurts people. It hurts people. In fact, the author C.S. Lewis, um, the writer of uh, the Narnia trilogies, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and other really great books, uh, 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 atheist-turned-Christian, powerful British writer uh, who lived during World War II, great, great books out there, wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in it, his argument or his possible prediction of what hell is like is where everyone gets almost about everything that they want. Because if everybody gets what everybody wants, it's pure chaos. And everybody's just going to start hurting everybody else. And who always hurts the most? Who suffers the most when that attitude, that approach to life happens? It's the people who have the least. It's always the people who have the least money, the least influence, the least strength, the poor, the marginalized, kids, women. Example, women. Uh, uh, women. When, when men can do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whomever they want, and there is no moral authority guiding men, historically, isn't it true that when women gain rights in that kind of a culture, they have to fight for it? That there are very few examples in history where women gained freedom because men stepped in and said, you know what? we have to make sure everybody's equal. Not until women or the marginalized band together and fight for those rights were those rights given. Think about it this way. In 2017, 8.3 million children were in poverty. And the people who led those 
uh, poverty-stricken families, 58%, 58, well over half of those uh, families were led by single mothers. Sole providers were the moms. Where's the dads, you ask? Good question. My suggestion to you is to consider that the dads were out doing what they want, when they wanted, with whom they wanted. You want to know how many of those families in poverty had a single father as the leader of the family? 8.3%. Who suffer most have the least. And those who have the most, those who have the most, rarely think of those who have the least. Rarely think of the minorities, those who have health issues, the elderly, immigrants, people of color. They suffer more because those who have the most rarely think of those who have the least. And it may be somewhat of an indication of why there's a bit of tension and frustration and anger in our country today, in the United States. In fact, you understand this concept. You understand this concept better than you probably know. Because if you think back to when you were a child, that maybe one of your parents or both of your parents lived a life or a season of their life doing what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And in a lot of ways, they didn't really factor you into it. They kind of, in a way, forgot about you and the pursuit of what they wanted to do. And maybe they provided for all your needs, but they also weren't present. Or maybe they got angry when you got in the way because you were not a joy so much as an inconvenience at some points. Or they were never home or their decisions to do what they wanted when they wanted ended in divorce in that relationship. And that has hurt you every day since. And if you're still not convinced that this version of freedom hurts people, eventually you are going to hurt you if you haven't already. I mean, have you ever said to yourself, why, why did I do that? Have you ever thought to yourself, why did I say that? You said that, you did that because you did right in your own eyes, first and foremost. And eventually, if you hurt you, eventually, if you hurt you, you also hurt the people around you. This is why parents are so concerned about who their kids hang out with. Because you may have a child that says to you, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm not going to do that stuff. Trust me, I will be on my best behavior. And you're, as a parent, sitting there thinking to you, well, I trust you. But if your friend does it and you are close to your friend, you could get hurt too. If you are a teenager, if you are married, if you are a parent, Ultimately, if you have people that care for you, if you hurt you, it will hurt others. Consider with me, why is it that this isn't our mantra, that this isn't our ultimate goal? I have the freedom to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, so long as it helps someone, serves someone, loves someone else better. Why don't we fight hard for this kind of freedom? Because this kind of freedom compromises the right in my own eye kind of freedom. When you have to see things through other people's eyes, not just your own, you set yourself up for helping other people and helping them better. But in so doing, you have to deny yourself 
and what you think you deserve and what's right in your own eye. If you want to think about the current hurt, mistrust, and unrest in our country and maybe possible solutions for that, I just want you to think about or ask yourself, especially if you have chosen to wade into that dialogue to an extent, wade into making a Facebook post or Instagram post or have a conversation about it. I just want you to think about or ask yourself, how many times have you sat and listened to the perspective of a person of color or minority? You have intentionally sat down to have a conversation to understand better. How many times? Not just coffee, okay? I'm talking an intentional conversation. How many times? Even if you're on the side, because there's kind of like these two sides right now in this divide, okay? And even if you're on the side of people of color, how many times have you sat to understand? Flip side, how many of you have done a ride-along? Not just talked to a police officer, but rode with a police officer. Even if you're on the side, or so to speak, of that equation, and you're trying to defend those rights, how many, have you, how many times have you sat in their shoes to understand? I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying, how often have you tried to see through someone else's eyes? Because neither of those are physically hard, but they require a whole different heart set. Not my eyes, but your eyes. I want to help you. I want to understand you. I don't want to make it about me. Wow. How powerful an insight you could walk away with. You want to know the second part that also gets me about this whole story is if everyone had just followed God's law, none of it would have happened. I'm talking the law that includes the Ten Commandments, the thou shall not. I want to talk about the law that made you walk away from church when you were a teenager because it kind of just took all the fun out of it, right? You know, you wanted to go to college and have real fun. You wanted to live your adult life like a real fun life. You know, you wanted to date like you're having fun, but not for real, not for commitment. Because this kind of law kept you from what was right in your eyes. If you would have followed God's law. None of it would have happened. At least that's my hunch. My hunch is had you followed God's law, even though we as Christians are under the law of Christ, which is actually a higher bar than just God's law, but just imagine you just had the Ten Commandments to go on, okay? Do you think your greatest regrets, your greatest pain points in your history and your past could have been avoided had you just followed those basic laws? Those laws that when you think about it make you feel restricted versus free? But now on the flip side, you're not really free because you're weighed down by those regrets and those hurts. I'm going to invite the band up, but I just want you as they come up, I want you to think about this. That maybe there are other eyes to see with than just yours. Maybe there are other eyes to see with than just yours. That, that maybe right in your eyes isn't always right. You want to know what I would love to see scrolling through Facebook and Instagram these days? Good. I'm glad you want to hear it because I'm going to tell you. I would love to see an infused church, and not just talking 
church, I'm talking the community of people. I would love to see a community of people who post, not trying to make their perspectives heard. I want them, I would love to see them posting about trying to hear other perspectives. Post about them being inside of a food bank, inside of a shelter, sitting down socially distanced with friends, trying to understand a different perspective, understand the perspective of the marginalized, of the minority, because guess what? That's where Jesus would have been. And if you're not sure, then you should maybe post some pictures about you reading the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, and understanding Jesus and how his heart was broken and what he came to bring life to and the hurt in the world to post pictures and, and statements about how you're taking faith steps, not l- trying to live what's right in your own eyes. I just want you to imagine what if you said, God, I don't want to look through my eyes. I want to look through your eyes, Lord. Help me to see the world not as right in my eyes, but what's right in your eyes. God, help me to see that way. Don't you think that would be a bit of a game changer? Don't you think your friends would look at you and say, wow, why are they doing that? Why do they love the way that they love? Don't you think that could make a real difference in our communities, in your heart, and the hearts of those around you? We're going to sing this song, and as we do, I want you to reflect on these discussion questions that we're going to put up on the screen, or, or you can just sing along, or you can just reflect on the words of this song, but what is one way you'll try to see another perspective this week? And what does God, creating all these rules for his people, for you, say about him? Let's sing the song, and then we'll come back to pray together. <laughs>